Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Here's the problem. About 1% of all visits to the ED are for dental complaints, usually for pain or bleeding. So at the hospital I work at, that's about 1,000 patients a year. Now, there's a multitude of reasons to explain why the hordes of dental patients show up in your ED, not to mention the cost of seeing a dentist. Now, think back to the last patient you saw with a dental complaint. I'll be the first to admit that the last patient I saw had atraumatic pain and they were suffering bitterly. But they didn't look sick and it didn't look like a deep space infection or anything that needed drainage in the ED. So I did what many of us do. I gave him a script for analgesics and antibiotics and told him to go see a dentist. But after some suggestions from listeners and various colleagues to do an episode on dental emergencies and learning more about dental emergencies myself, I realized that my simple algorithm of doesn't look like a deep space infection or something that I can drain, analgesics, antibiotics, and send to a dentist was, shall I say, pathetically inadequate. And I realized that I know very little about dental emergencies, and it was time I bucked up. So let's all buck up on dental emergencies. Our guest experts on this topic, I found through the wonderful Michelle Lin from Allium. So thank you very much, Dr. Lin. She kindly connected me with Dr. Chris Nash, a medical education fellow and emergency physician at Massachusetts General in Boston, and Dr. Richard No, an oral and maxillofacial surgery resident also at Massachusetts General. Welcome to EM Cases, gentlemen. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, very excited to be here. All right, so in this part one of our two-part series on dental emergencies, we're going to talk about atraumatic causes of dental pain, and in part two, we'll talk about dental trauma. So our general approach to dental pain, and the first question we really should ask ourselves once we've established that the pain is coming from the dentition is, is the cause of pain traumatic or atraumatic? Because if it's atraumatic, we're talking about things like dental caries, gingivitis, pulpitis, abscesses, and they all require specific management. So let's first get a general sense of the differences between the various common atraumatic dental diseases. Um, Dr. No, what's the difference between a dental carie, gingivitis, pulpitis, and dental abscess? Right. So these are all differing levels or various levels of infection of the oral cavity. And so caries is essentially what we know colloquially as a cavity by the general public. And this is when bacteria in the mouth cause an acidic reaction and breakdown of the tooth structure. And so for these cases, you would just go to see a dentist and you would have this treated. Gingivitis is inflammation of the gingiva, which is the soft tissue surrounding the teeth. And this comes from not flossing properly um, or poor oral hygiene. Both of these cases are generally managed um, in the outpatient setting. What more commonly comes into the ED would be pulpitis and periapical abscesses or dental oral abscesses. And so for these, pulpitis is essentially when you have pain of the pulp. The pulp is the central portion of the tooth where the nerves and the blood vessels lie. And it's when a cavity extends all the way deep down into the pulp, leading to inflammation of the pulp is when you have pulpitis. 
And in this case, antibiotics are generally unlikely to be helpful. What this patient with pulpitis needs is actually to see a dentist in the outpatient setting and possibly get a root canal treatment done to take care of the dental malady. And so with periaqual abscesses or dental abscesses, this is what's generally seen in the ED and needs treatment in the form of an incision and drainage. And what happens in this case is that the infection from the oral bacteria extends all the way down to the pulp, and then it goes down the root of the tooth and then expands into the bone surrounding the tooth. And then you have um, a collection of pus eventually leading to a pocket of pus that needs drainage in the mouth. And so in these cases, what generally needs to be done is that the patient needs to get an IND in the hospital setting in the ED, and then they would be discharged to the outpatient setting where they would get final treatment in the form of either a root canal or possibly extraction of that tooth. All right, great. So just to review there, that was a lot of stuff. So pulpitis, the patient has tooth sensitivity, pain on tapping the tooth, but really not much else to see. It's not an infection, so it does not require antibiotics. But my understanding is that it can eventually lead to necrosis if it's left untreated. And so that's why you need a root canal. So they definitely need some follow-up. The abscesses, which you might read as periapical abscesses and periodontal abscesses, but really we just treat them the same in the emergency department. These are what we commonly see in the emergency department. And that's usually when the infection spreads through the bottom of the tooth and comes out in the buccal aspect of the tooth. And you'll see some swelling and you'll see the fluctuants. And it's just like any other abscess that we drain in the emergency department. You go for the fluctuant part with an 11 blade. And many of these patients will get antibiotics prescribed in the ED, but we'll talk about which patients exactly need antibiotics in a little bit because there is kind of this uh, widespread overuse of antibiotics for dental pain, it seems, in emergency medicine. And so that's really what we're looking at. Again, it's pulpitis versus gingivitis versus abscess. All right. So that was kind of a basic overview of the various common causes of atraumatic dental pain. I'd like to get into a bit more detail on the assessment and and management of dental abscess in particular. So Dr. Nash, let's say you've got a patient with a dental abscess. How do you suggest we manage these patients in the ED? We already talked about the IND, but what else do we want to kind of look out for and how else are you going to manage them? I think it's a great question. And just to be clear, what we're hoping to see in someone we're hoping to treat definitively is a very clear site of abscess that we can drain. The same way you drain a skin abscess, you take an 11 blade, you make an incision and drain it out. What we're hoping is that it's that clear. It's not always the case. If you see something that is readily drainable, you drain it. And I would say, while there are some complications to the literature for a purulent versus non-purulent cellulitis, and sometimes you use antibiotics, sometimes you won't, in a dental abscess, typically you'll want to send them home with antibiotics. And my practice is, if it's uncomplicated and they're not penicillin allergic, I would use penicillin or I would use clindamycin. If it seems like a deeper abscess, there's surrounding infection, you may consider using penicillin plus metronidazole, or even if it's a very severe infection, you may initiate intravenous antibiotics, something like piperacillin, tazobactam, or clindamycin plus ceftriaxone. As always, you'll need pain control, and you can do that with a dental block and some oral pain medicines as well. If they're uncomplicated, they do need to get seen by a generalist typically within the next one to two days, as long as that's a feasible thing to do where you practice. More significant infections really should be seen by an oral surgeon as soon as feasibly possible. 
All right. One of the things that sometimes seems to get mixed up and is maybe one of the reasons why there's so much overuse of antibiotics is trying to figure out what the difference between pulpitis and abscess is. In particular, a periapical abscess can look like pulpitis. Their treatment is different because generally the abscess will require antibiotics and pulpitis does not. Dr. Nash, how do you differentiate between pulpitis and a periapical abscess clinically? So clinically, if it's very clearly periapical abscess, meaning there's some swelling there, there's adjacent cellulitis, if they have tooth elevation, if they've got fevers, or obvious lymphadenopathy, in other words, if it really seems like they have a bacterial infection at the site, you're probably not going to go wrong by treating that with antibiotics. If there's fluctuance, that's the key, whether you see it on imaging or you see it clinically. If there's fluctuance and there's a true abscess there, you're done. If there's just some tenderness with palpation and some pain, then I think you should think about not doing antibiotics or potentially doing a wait-and-see approach. I think that something to keep in mind is that difference between fluctuance and induration. So fluctuance, when you palpate, you might feel some fluid in the region, and that is more likely to be a periapical abscess, which would require incision and drainage. Whereas when you have just purely induration, just a hard indurated area, then it's more likely to be cellulitis, in which case they would definitely not need to get IND done or they would not need to get ACT. That's a, it's a great clarifying point. The other thing that I've read about, you know, we are emergency physicians, so we want to be able to pick out the most deadly problems. And uh, thankfully, most dental problems aren't deadly. But I did read a bit about acute necrotizing gingivitis, which sounds pretty bad, of course. Um, Dr. No, what is acute necrotizing gingivitis and how should it be managed in the emergency department? Right. So acute necrotizing gingivitis is a situation where you have an infection of the gingiva, again, the soft tissue surrounding the teeth. And the main features that you see in this situation are extreme pain, oftentimes bleeding gums and ulceration of the soft tissue in between the teeth. And risk factors for this include patients with poor oral hygiene or who are in an immunocompromised state. And they often experience this with a sudden onset of rapidly progressive pain. And so management for acute necrotizing gingivitis generally includes the usage of NSAIDs for pain and antibiotics, um, amoxicillin 500 milligrams PO, Q8 hours with metronidazole 500 milligrams PO, Q8 for 10 days can be provided. Or if the patient is allergic to penicillin, then clindamycin 300 milligrams PO, Q8 for 10 days can be done. The patient would also need debridement of the gingiva. Um, and additionally, they can also be prescribed chlorhexidine, which is an oral rinse, 15 milliliters twice a day for seven to 10 days. And the patient should definitely follow up with a dentist in the outpatient setting if possible. And they should be provided IV hydration and enteral nutrition while they're in the hospital. Something else to consider is that the patient can be tested for HIV or other causes of immunosuppression can be worked up. All right. So again, the, the main features are, are bleeding gums and ulceration sort of in between the teeth. And so that's how you'll pick this up. There's severe pain, bleeding gums, and ulcers. And this is, I believe, what they used to call trench mouth because in World War I, all the soldiers who were in the trenches eventually ended up with poor dental hygiene and some of them got acute necrotizing gingivitis, unfortunately. All right, so the dental infections seem pretty straightforward, but we haven't really talked about the deep space infections, and those are what we really need to be careful not to miss. 
So let's talk a little bit about the common pitfalls when it comes to dental infections. Dr. Nash, what are some of the sort of red flag symptoms? What are some of the common pitfalls when it comes to dental infections? So we have to think about what it might look like if our patient's simple dental infection is no longer so simple. Certainly, when you see someone who has swelling extending into their chest, into their neck, reduced mobility of their neck, or having increasing systemic symptoms. Now, for some abscesses, you might have fevers, but persistent fevers in setting of someone who's not looking particularly well, that ought to raise a red flag for you. Every single patient you're evaluating for dental pain, you should check the floor of their mouth and ensure there's no elevation. Similarly, palpation anteriorly to make sure there's no induration or a woody sensation, erythema spreading down the anterior part of the neck that might raise concern for Ludwig's angina. As an aside, stepping away from some of the deeper space infections, anytime you're thinking of draining an anterior mandibular periapical abscess, in other words, in the lower part of the jaw, in the front of the front teeth, you have to be very cautious Remember the branches of the trigeminal nerve pop out anteriorly, and you can feel, and if you could see me doing this right now, you'd see me pushing on my own chin, the little divots in the front. That's where the mental nerve pops out, and you want to avoid causing damage to the mental nerve with your blade and the associated blood vessels. Great pearl. Dr. No, any comments about uh, sort of red flag symptoms, things we want to avoid? Yes, definitely. So in terms of diagnosis for Ludwig's angina, floor of mouth elevation of any kind is generally a red flag and something important to consider and care should definitely be escalated if you are able to find this. But it's important to know whether it is unilateral or bilateral. If it's unilateral, then it's probably less urgent, but should still be escalated to a specialist. But if it's bilateral floor of mouth swelling with bilateral um, swelling of the semimandibular region, then more likely to be Ludwig angina, in which case the patient would urgently need to be operated in the operating room. Excellent. So we've done some EM quick hits on Ludwig's angina. So I'll refer listeners back to that because that's a very important diagnosis not to miss. Now, there's other deep space infections that we don't want to miss either. In terms of clinically, how you're going to pick up a deep space infection for someone who presents with what looks like a dental infection, What are some of the key clinical features that would make you suspect that someone might have a deep fascial space infection? Assessing whether or not a patient has a deep fascial space infection is a little bit difficult to do by physical examination. So this is where CT imaging comes into play and is helpful. But sometimes it's difficult to know when to do CT imaging and when not to. So according to the literature, the most important thing to look for are these two things blunting of the inferior border of the mandibular body, which means that the in, the inferior portion of the, the mandible, when you are no longer able to palpate it or sort of visualize that border, then the swelling has extended to the point where it's very difficult to see or feel. That's pretty concerning and should require a CT scan. Alternatively, if they do not have blunting of the inferior border, but then they do have trismus, which is the uh, difficulty for the patient to open their mouth, then they would also need a CT scan as well. And the threshold for obtaining a CT scan is if they're unable to open their mouth larger than 25 millimeters. All right. And and Dr. Nash, any other sort of clinical pearls in terms of what would make you worried about a deep space infection besides bunting of the inferior border of the mandible and trismus? 
that'll get you 90% of the way, 90 plus of the way there. I think anybody that raises, we all, we all grow these antennae when we work in the emergency department and somebody who just doesn't seem like a typical dental infection, somebody who's sicker, doesn't move their neck around quite well. Somebody you think just looks sicker than a typical person that you might have otherwise thought would belong in a dentist's office. That's someone I would at least let it cross my mind if whether or not they need a CT image just to rule out the life-threatening emergencies. But I got to say, those two are going to be your guiding, your guiding lights. All right. In terms of the abscesses that we should not drain in the emergency department, you know, obviously there's deep space abscesses that we can't get to that we're not going to be draining. But Dr. No, could you just go over for us which abscesses that seem to arise from the dentition we should not be taking a knife to? All right. So as far as dental abscesses that should be drained in the ED, the ones that are most safe would be the ones in the vestibular area or in the buccal space. And so the vestibular area is a space between the front teeth and the lips where there's a little pocket that forms. Abscesses here can be drained easily and without difficulty. And in terms of those in the buccal space, these would be on the inside of the cheek. These can also be drained as well. But the thing to consider with buccal space infections is that if you're ever incising that area, you must be careful with possibly incising the uh, parotid duct. You don't want to cut that area because it could possibly lead to salivary issues in the future for the patient. And so infections in any other space in oral maxillofacial area should be left for an oral maxillofacial surgeon. So anything that is in the deep pterygoal mandibular space, any of the deep spaces, deep fascial planes, anything that tracks up to the eye or down to the neck should definitely be left for an oral maxillofacial surgeon. All right. So just to review there, really the only ones that we should be attempting to do an IND on are the ones that are in the vestibular space and the buccal space. And then pretty much everything else we should leave to a surgeon. Correct. I want to talk a little bit about pericoronitis. So this is another dental condition that we should kind of think of as separately from abscesses and sometimes can be confused with abscesses. So Dr. Nash, what is pericoronitis and how should it be treated in the emergency department differently than abscesses that we've already talked about? Yeah, that's a great question. So the idea of pericoronitis is that you have inflammation of the gingival soft tissue overlying the mandibular third molar. Now that's all the way in the back, especially on the lower jaw. This soft tissue can be subject to trauma from the patient biting down or from other sources, food, etc., and may lead to inflammation. And this is the condition pericoronitis. To manage these patients in the ER, you would irrigate if it seems as though there's fluctuance in an abscess, you could consider antibiotics as well. If it's truly fluctuant and it seems drainable, that can also be considered. And they need follow-up to have extraction of the wisdom teeth. For irrigation in the ER and as an outpatient, you want to try and irrigate out any food debris that's under that area using chlorhexidine or normal saline, as these can acutely reduce bacterial counts. And then for antibiotics, it's best to use either penicillin or clindamycin if they're allergic to penicillin, because if not treated, pericoronitis can result in a localized soft tissue infection. All right. So that's a bit about pericoronitis. And again, that is inflamed gingiva overlying the wisdom teeth, essentially. And many of them do not have an abscess, and so they do not require antibiotics. Dr. No, generally speaking with pericoronitis, is it common to see an abscess there? Or do the vast majority of them not have abscesses? 
Generally, with pericoronitis, it's just you will see inflammation, erythema in the area, but and maybe possibly some purulent drainage, but an abscess generally does not form in that area. And so if it's actively draining and the area has some purulent drainage, then the patients can be managed as we just discussed. If there is an abscess in that area, since it is a sensitive area that's pretty far posterior, I would recommend consulting an oral maxillofacial surgeon. So in terms of which patients require antibiotics who have potential dental infections, we talked about how the abscesses generally do require antibiotics. With pericoronitis, they only require antibiotics if there is an obvious abscess present. Pulpitis and gingivitis do not require antibiotics. And then you want to consider antibiotics for patients who have trismus, who have purulence, who have a known immunocompromised state who have significant swelling that's either intraoral or extraoral, that patient who might have a big swollen cheek and you suspect a dental infection, they require antibiotics as well. Any other comments about who requires antibiotics and who does not? Right. The most common thing that happens in the ED is that patients who come in for dental pain, pulpitis, gingivitis, would get antibiotics when they really shouldn't. So it's really important to do a good physical exam and make sure that you palpate the area. If it's fluctuant, then it's an abscess and they would need antibiotics. Patients should get antibiotics for cellulitis, but they do not need incision and drainage. Now, if you are going to give antibiotics, you've mentioned so far some of the antibiotics you might give. I just want to review there kind of what your first and second line choices are going to be for antibiotics. Dr. Nash? Sure. This is one of those things where I think we as physicians typically do tend to go a little overkill, so this is worth paying attention to. For a non-penicillin allergic patient, typically sufficient for a rather simple infection would be oral amoxicillin, typically dosed at 500 milligrams three times a day for three to seven days. And that's usually enough. You don't always need, I know where I work, what I've commonly seen is amoxicillin clavulanic acid. Even that is overly broad for most patients with simple dental infections. You can also use oral penicillin. That's the penicillin V uh, with potassium, 500 milligrams, four times a day. It's just a bit more of a cumbersome regimen for your patient. If this first-line treatment fails, you may consider broadening the antibiotic therapy by adding oral metronidazole, 500 milligrams, three times a day for seven days. Or at that point, you could consider broadening to amoxicillin clavulanic acid. If the patient's penicillin allergic, you might want to inquire, and this is similar to what you do for all of your penicillin allergic patients, figure out is it a rash they were told they had when they were younger, or is penicillin potentially still the best option for them? If they're truly allergic, then you may consider whether they could tolerate a cephalosporin, such as oral cephalexin, 500 milligrams QID for three to seven days. Or if you want to stay away from that type of class altogether, you could try oral azithromycin, typically started with 500 milligrams the first day, followed by 250 milligrams thereafter every day for four days. You can also use oral clindamycin. If those fails, then you may broaden by adding on the oral metronidazole, similar to the penicillin non-allergic patients. This is an area where you may not memorize this off the bat if you need to look this up. And I'm sure this will be available in show notes as well. All right, great. And then those patients who have deep space infections who are really sick or septic, that's when we're talking about IV antibiotics and you might be pulling out Piptase or Clindenseftraxone or something like that. Yeah, that's a great start. That's what I'd recommend for sure. Great.
I want to talk a bit about dry socket. Now, every now and again, I see a patient a few days after a tooth extraction with lots of pain, but really nothing to see on exam. You know, there's no abscess, there's no obvious cellulitis, there's no significant swelling, there's there's nothing. Um, and I sometimes wonder if these patients are seeking opiates, but sometimes these patients actually have a dry socket, which is essentially pain after dental extraction from exposure to the bone surface. And these usually present about three to five days after they've had their tooth extracted. Dr. No, that's kind of how you'd pick it up. That patient who's had their tooth extracted three to five days ago and has pain that's otherwise sort of unexplainable. How do you treat these patients? Right. Yeah. So these patients generally will come into the ED with extreme amount of pain. And and like you said, it's because of exposure of the bone and exposure of the nerves in the area after extraction of the tooth. And so treatment for a dry socket is relatively simple. First, you have to irrigate the socket with some sterile saline. And then second, you gently suction away the excess saline, but be sure not to suction too deep into the pocket because we want to make sure to avoid suctioning a blood clot that is helping with the healing process. And additionally, the area should not be curetted because, again, we want to maintain that blood clot for optimal healing. And then lastly would be the insertion of a dry socket dressing, also known as an iodoform gauze, into the socket. These might be available in your emergency department, or alternatively, they can be obtained from the pharmacy or as a commercial preparation from a dental supply company. Things that are included in this dressing include eugenol, which helps with the pain, a topical anesthetic such as benzocaine, and some sort of carrying vehicle such as the balsam of Peru. And it's, it's actually quite amazing. When you apply this, a patient with dry socket should usually experience immediate relief within five minutes. Unfortunately, many emergency departments do not carry this. And so an alternative is to use a ribbon gauze or a gel foam impregnated with eugenol, iodine, or oil of cloves. Something important to consider is that the patient, um, after placement of this socket, should see an outpatient dentist or oral surgeon within a couple of days. We definitely do not want to leave this dressing in there for a long period of time, and they definitely need to have this changed every other day for the next week or so. I would do one small addition to this just for what I know is is available at most shops. The iodoform gauze, the iodoform impregnated gauze, is most likely going to be the most readily available dressing for an emergency physician. So before we wrap up part one, you know, we've talked about pulpitis, we've talked about gingivitis, we've talked about dental abscess, we've talked about deep fascial plane infections, uh, we've talked about dry socket. Any other pearls or pitfalls or tips or tricks when it comes to atraumatic dental pain? The one thing I'll plug for is for episode two, we're going to talk about regional anesthesia. You'll be surprised just how quickly you can get a patient out of the emergency department feeling much better with some simple blocks. So that we'll look forward to that for part two. Awesome. So yeah, in part two, uh, we are going to be talking about dental trauma and we're going to be talking about analgesia. We're going to be talking about how to stop bleeding. So thank you very much, gentlemen, for your teachings on atraumatic dental infections and such. And uh, I look forward to part two. Wonderful. Thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure. All right. Before we give you the big review to help make this stuff stick, tickets for the fifth annual online podcast camp go on sale August 22nd at podcastcamp.org. There are only 20 spots available for this boutique course. And this year, we have a new instructor, the very talented gentleman, the podcast host of the Internet Book of Critical Care himself, Dr. Adam Thomas, as well as our keynote speaker, the rebel himself, Dr. Salim Rizay. 
you get a book on everything you need to know about podcast production that I've revised carefully over the past five years. It's over three Thursday evenings, November 30th, December 7th, and December 14th. So put those dates aside. There's lots of hands-on time between the course days, and the course culminates with the pod wars, where you get specific feedback on the podcast that you work on throughout the course. We dig deep into pre-production, recording technique, voice editing, sound design, hosting and posting, and I offer one-on-one coaching as well. There's more information at podcastcamp.org. All right, let's do the big review of everything we've learned about atraumatic dental pain. Now, when it comes to atraumatic dental pain, we talked about infections, which generally progress from a simple dental carry to gingivitis and pulpitis. Then there's cellulitis and abscess, as well as deep space infections that spread along fascial planes. There's pericoronitis, basically gingival inflammation over a wisdom tooth. We talked about acute necrotizing gingivitis, that's the bleeding and ulcers in between the teeth, and we talked about dry socket. That's the one where three to five days after tooth extraction, the clot dislodges and exposes the bone and nerve, and it's quite painful. So for dental infections, probably the most common pitfall is giving antibiotics to everyone. Remember that dental caries, gingivitis, and pulpitis generally do not require antibiotics. And these account for the vast majority of patients with atraumatic dental pain. Antibiotics should really be reserved for patients with cellulitis, obvious abscess, deep space infections, acute necrotizing gingivitis, and sometimes pericoronitis, really only if it's associated with an abscess. And in terms of which antibiotics to give, really oral amoxicillin or penicillin is all you need for simple dental infections. If the infection is very severe, you can consider adding metronidazole or else amoxicillin clavulinic acid. And if they're systemically ill with complicated infections, then you're considering IV peptase or IV clinda plus ceftriaxone. Now, the question always comes up, how do you tell the difference between periapical abscess, which requires antibiotics, and pulpitis, which does not? It's really about the duration of pain and secondary signs of infection, like tooth elevation, adjacent cellulitis, lymphadenopathy, and fever. If you don't see an abscess and the patient has none of these, it's probably pulpitis, and they do not require antibiotics. And then the other question that always comes up is when should you suspect a deep fascial plane infection that requires a CT? Well, there are two physical findings that suggest deep space infection and the need to order a CT. Number one is blunting of the inferior border of the mandible at the body. And number two is trismus of less than 2.5 centimeters of maximum mouth opening. Plus, we need to be especially alert for the signs of Ludwig's angina, that's red swelling under the chin, and floor of the mouth elevation. And you need to be especially worried if the signs are bilateral. Now, it's within our wheelhouse to drain buccal abscesses and vestibular area ones, that's the space between the front teeth and the lips, essentially. All other abscesses generally require an oral surgeon or dentist. A couple of structures to avoid when doing INDs of these abscesses. Number one, the mental nerve, and that's the one which exits in the divots of the chin, and those should be avoided when draining anterior mandibular abscesses. And number two, when incising a buccal abscess, take care to avoid the salivary duct. 
Then there's pericoronitis, which is inflammation of the gingiva overlying the wisdom teeth. And that on its own generally does not require antibiotics unless it's associated with an abscess, which usually requires an oral surgeon to drain. All we really need to do for pericoronitis in the ED is irrigate the area and make sure they get follow-up for tooth extraction. Then there's acute necrotizing gingivitis, or trench mouth, which is very painful, bleeding gums and ulcers that you can see in between the teeth. Think immunocompromised if you see this, and consider HIV testing. Acute necrotizing gingivitis is treated with NSAIDs, antibiotics, chlorhexidine rinses, and needs to be debrided by an oral surgeon. And then finally, there's dry socket. That's the pain three to five days after tooth extraction with nothing much to see on exam. These should be irrigated with saline, gently suctioned, taking care not to dislodge any blood clot that might be developing. Remember, do not use a curette. And then placement of a medicated dry socket dressing, usually iodoform gauze. They should be followed up by a dentist or an oral surgeon in two days. All right, well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll cover dental trauma, nerve blocks, analgesia, and a whole lot more. So until next time, take it easy. Mm-hmm.